Vocês estão ouvindo o podcast Estudar Direito pelo Mundo. Neste podcast, você aprenderá com calma como você pode alcançar o sonho de realizar seu mestrado em Direito fora do Brasil. Envie suas perguntas e depoimentos no Instagram, arroba Klaus Lau. Olá, todos. Estudar Direito pelo Mundo, um podcast que um, helps you to learn about different areas of law and, and the ideas of studying and practicing law in different areas of the world. Today, I'm hosting Mark J. Victor, who is a criminal attorney in Arizona and Hawaii. Uh, he's the founder of Attorneys for Freedom, uh, a law firm that is focused especially on criminal defense, and he'll definitely tell us a little bit more about it. I'm looking forward to discussing a little bit about the criminal process and the framework of it in the US. Thanks again, uh, Mark, for joining us. So Mark, would you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, it's a uh, pleasure to be on your podcast. And uh, it's true. My name is Mark Victor. I am uh, the founder and the owner of the Attorneys for Freedom law firm. We um, represent people in uh, criminal cases really across the United States and state courts and in federal courts. We have offices in both Arizona and in Hawaii. We also do uh, personal injury, wrongful death cases. We do civil rights cases. I like to say we, uh, we go after bad cops and we protect good cops. And, um, you know, we also do some civil litigation as well. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much what the, the firm is. Uh, obviously, from the name, you can tell we are a very pro-freedom law firm. All the lawyers are freedom activists. We care about a free society and a free world. And uh, we're not shy about saying we do everything we can in terms of using the law firm to try to affect change. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing. And so we can get started on, on a little bit of uh, a personal level, I guess. Uh, when did you decide to study law? Did you have that growing up? How did that come up for you? You know, I don't know if I can remember far enough back to think of a time when I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I can remember writing thank you notes to people at 12 years old saying, I'm going to use this gift for law school. So uh, there, I can't think of a time where I wanted to do anything other than go to law school. I always liked criminal law. Um, probably I gave some thought to whether I want to prosecute or do defense. Uh, but when I was in law school, it became pretty clear to me that um, defense was where it's at for me. To me, it's by far the harder job. Um, you're always outgunned. You always have the worst side of the case. And you got to do the dirty work of um, defending the Constitution, or said another way, defending the really, really critically important right to a fair trial, especially in cases where um, maybe lots of people don't care about a fair trial, right? The charge could be ugly, uh, could be really horrible facts, and uh, the tendency of people is, you know, throw them in a cage and uh, lock them up and throw away the key. And uh, sometimes it's just you, it's, it's just me standing there between what would otherwise be a lynch mob. And uh, I'm the only person there sort of insisting on a fair trial. Now to be fair, uh, there are lots of good prosecutors who still understand and honor this concept and also judges as well, but it really falls to the criminal defense attorney to make sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed before the government puts a human being in a cage. 
Wow, fantastic. Yeah, I know that you're a great defender of due process as well, if I'm right. Oh, no question about that. You got to have due process. If you don't have due process, you can't have a civilized society. That's right. Well, uh, considering that, um, do, did you choose criminal defense or going into the criminal field uh, while we were in law school? Was that very clear for you while we were in school? Or did you, do you feel like you explored some areas of law uh, before going into it? You know, I, um, I think really it occurred to me mostly as I was studying criminal procedure and reviewing the cases that the Supreme Court had decided that govern interactions between police officers and citizens. And, you know, some people, I think, just naturally gravitate to the side of uh, we don't want police officers interfering uh, with people, even if it cost us some prosecutions here and there. And then there's the other side that kind of takes a position more like, well, uh, what's the big deal? It's a little intrusion. It's a, a brief stop. It's a small search uh, for the ends of putting maybe bad guys away. And uh, maybe people break along those two lines. And I uh, always thought it was a pretty serious thing when the government interferes uh, with a citizen for any reason. And of course, there are times when this needs to happen. And so I don't think anybody takes the position that this should never happen. But there's a substantial gray area there. And I think some people naturally gravitate to the defense side and other people naturally gravitate to the prosecution side. And uh, really, they're different mentalities. And so uh, my mentality was better suited for the defense side. Yeah, I, I like how you put that. Um, well, um, as you probably know, and, and I guess I mentioned some of it, most of our listeners are based in Brazil, and then we have some around the world. We're trying to make it in English so it's accessible for, for people elsewhere, too. Um, and I probably wouldn't want you to learn Portuguese just to be part of my podcast, too. But, I wish I could. Uh, I would be happy right? to learn it if I had the extra time. But I, I'm not, I'm, I'm have, I have enough trouble with the English language. I can only imagine. But let me ask you from, let's say, the moment somebody gets, gets arrested to the hearing, what's, what's the general process? What's, what does like due process and criminal prosecution look like? And, and I'm sure it goes different ways when it's a different case, but just in a very general sense, or if you want to maybe put a situation and kind of just walk us through uh, kind of a step-by-step, -step, uh, and it could be really summarized. How does the, the criminal process happens in the U.S.? Yeah, I think um, I think actually the um, criminal procedure in the United States, while uh, I would certainly make some changes and it's not perfect, it's pretty good. Uh, keep in mind, we have two uh, different criminal justice systems in each state, right? There is a state criminal justice system and then there is a federal criminal justice system. There are more similarities than differences, but there are some important differences. But um, the vast majority of criminal cases are handled in the state courts, not the federal courts. So let me just tell you about um, how things work in Arizona, for example. And you should know that um, it's federal law that governs the sort of minimum uh, level of uh, what you might say freedom that is required. So there's a Fourth Amendment, that's a federal question, and there are limits on what the police are allowed to do under the Fourth Amendment that apply to the states. The states are not free um, to give the police more authority here, uh, but they're always free to give them less. 
And so um, basically, you first, really, criminal procedure starts with the first interaction between a citizen and a, usually a police officer, right? And so the first question really is, is it a voluntary interaction or is it an involuntary interaction? And this is important because police officers can always have voluntary interactions with citizens. A police officer can say, or, or a citizen could go talk to a police officer and they could have a conversation. There's no sort of Fourth Amendment or constitutional question here. These are just two people having a conversation. But if a police officer says, hold on, uh, I want to ask you a question. Well, now uh, you have an order to, de to be detained. You're not free to leave. And so now the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution is implicated. And, um, you know, there are different levels of a proof that are required, different levels of evidence, if you will. And the, the level that's needed for a brief detention comes out of a case called Terry versus Ohio, and we call it reasonable suspicion. It's not a very high level. Uh, it's less than 50%. But if an officer has reasonable suspicion, and I should say, by the way, this can't be a hunch. Uh, the officer has to be able to get on the stand and articulate facts. Uh, that would allow a reasonable police officer to conclude that uh, there's reasonable suspicion that this person uh, is involved in a criminal offense. And so if they have that, then an officer is allowed to have a brief detention. There are times when the officer can also do a limited search. We call it a Terry search, uh, where the officer can uh, briefly pat, you see the pat down searches where the officer can pat down the outer layers of clothing. That all is a reasonable suspicion issue. So if the officer then uh, develops reasons to have more suspicion and can elevate that reasonable suspicion to something higher, we call probable cause, which you would think would be more than 50%, but the courts have never said that. Indeed, uh, some courts have said less than 50% can still be probable cause. So I, that's one of those areas that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but if the officer has probable cause now that a crime has been committed and this person was involved in that crime, well, then the officer can make an arrest. And, um, you know, there are certain rights that come along with that. Uh, once an officer makes an arrest, uh, if the officer is intending to interrogate the person arrested, then the officer is required to um, tell the person arrested about what we call the Miranda warnings. Comes out of a case really that originated here in Arizona. Miranda versus Arizona went to the United States Supreme Court. And in that case, um, the Supreme Court said to the police, if you got somebody under arrest and you are going to interrogate them, which is to ask them questions about the reason they've been arrested, you got to give them four different warnings. You got to tell them they have a right to remain silent. You got to tell them that anything they say will be used against them. You got to tell them they have a right to an attorney. And then you got to tell them if they can't afford an attorney, they'll be appointed one for free. So the consequences of not giving those warnings doesn't mean the case gets thrown out. It really just means that whatever statement that the defendant makes, we call that an unmirandized statement, can't be used by the prosecutor in their case in chief, which means they can't use it as part of their case to convict. Now, if the person gets on the stand at a trial and says something different, 
then okay, the statement can come in to impeach. So the prosecutor can say, well, isn't it true? You told the police officer something different way back when you were arrested. Even though these are not Mirandai statements, they can come in for purposes of impeachment. So after the arrest, the officer, this is a this is a spot for abuse, right? Because police can arrest a person and in places that are less free, uh, officers can hold people in jail and really extract can, uh, confessions from them. They can be treated poorly. Um, and this happens in places. Well, in Arizona, to deal with this, we call this the initial appearance, by the way, the very first appearance in court. This is required to happen within 24 hours of the arrest. I think that's a pretty reasonable rule. And because of this rule, here in Maricopa County, where I live and where we practice, um, we do many cases here, they run court around the clock for this reason. They have night court. So you might be in court at three o'clock in the morning or one o'clock in the morning. Uh, we call those at our firm, the late night freedom fights. And so I'm, I'm very proud of this rule. I think this is a necessary rule. I, okay, it gives the police 24 hours to do what they gotta do. Um, so that there is some opportunity to interrogate, um, but you're brought in front of a judge pretty quick. And at that point, you're entitled to a hearing on conditions of release. And there's a preference in our criminal rules for what we call an OR release, a release on your own recognizance, which means on your promise to come back. Now, a judge will look um, at the facts. And even though you're presumed innocent of the charge, the judge can still look at the strength of the evidence in the case. But what the judge is really looking for are uh, things that would cause a judge to conclude that the person arrested might be a flight risk. So if they're let out of custody, maybe they flee uh, or a danger to the community. If the judge finds that the person is a flight risk or a danger to the community, then uh, the judge can start putting some conditions on that release. Conditions that are common are things like a bond. You might have to post uh, a bond, which is really a promise to pay money uh, if that you don't appear for court, or it could be a cash only bond where you have to actually pay cash into the court and they hold on to that, which is forfeit if the person doesn't show for trial. Also really uh, common in Arizona, we have something called pre-trial services, which, which is like being on probation at the beginning, somebody sort of watching over you, you have to report into somebody. You could be given an ankle monitor with the GPS monitoring that you're required to keep on at all times. You could be put on home arrest and maybe allowed to leave only for work and to visit your attorney and things like that. So there can be a whole host of conditions. There are many other conditions. Drug testing is often a common condition uh, that judges can put on people. Sometimes they'll say, don't leave the state, don't leave the city you, you live in, don't leave the country. Those can be all common conditions. So there's a hearing that happens within 24 hours. Then after that, if the person remains in custody, then they are entitled to a, a what we call a preliminary hearing within 10 days. Now I'm talking about felonies here. Uh, crimes are divided up into felonies and misdemeanors. And uh, generally the dividing line across the country between a felony and a misdemeanor is the answer to the question, how much time could you be sentenced to stay in a cage? If it's a year or more, it's a felony. If it's under a year, it's usually a misdemeanor. In Arizona, six months is the worst 
thing that can happen to you on a misdemeanor. So I'm talking about felonies now. So in the case of a felony, you have a preliminary hearing within 10 days from that time of the initial appearance. That's pretty quick. And the purpose of that hearing is for a neutral decision maker, like a judge, to take a look at the evidence in the case and to determine if there's enough evidence to constitute what we call probable cause to allow the case to go forward. And the reason for this is, you know, defending against a felony can be a very serious, uh, expensive and stressful type of a thing. And uh, without that hearing, you could be forced to defend based on nothing more than a prosecutor filing a complaint, a criminal complaint in court, and you'd have to defend against that, maybe go all the way through trial. So here is an opportunity for a judge to say, nope, I don't think there's enough evidence here. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm not going to find probable cause. Now, there's an alternative uh, thing that a prosecutor can do besides holding a preliminary hearing. And sometimes prosecutors want to do this instead of a preliminary hearing. Maybe they don't want to give an opportunity for a defendant to call witnesses or cross-examine witnesses at a preliminary hearing. So they take a case to what we call the grand jury. Well, the grand jury is uh, sort of an abomination in our system. Our system is mostly an adversary system, which means that uh, one side presents one case, the other side presents the other, other side, and based on two adversaries arguing uh, different sides of the case, we get to the truth. The grand jury is a holdout from a different variety of system. You might call an inquisitorial type of a justice system. So this is a secret proceeding. In the state court here, there are 12 citizens who serve on the grand jury. They're picked randomly and they serve for a period of time. And then the case is presented to the 12 members of the grand jury. The only people in the room are the 12 grand jurors, a prosecutor, usually a police officer, and a court reporter. The defendant doesn't get to go. The defense attorney doesn't get to go. There's no judge in the room. And the prosecutor's duty is to present that case in a way that is fair so the grand jurors can then make a decision about whether probable cause exists to charge the person with a crime. If they decide to charge the person with a crime, they call that an indictment. So when you hear the word indictment in the United States, this tells you that the case is coming from a grand jury, which means you don't need to do a preliminary hearing now. And so um, I should say that in the state court, it's rather easy to challenge what happened at the grand jury. You can get the transcript of what occurred and the defense attorney often, we do this in every case, will review the transcript of what was presented at the grand jury and can, under certain circumstances, file a motion with the court to basically say, look, it wasn't a fair presentation. Remand it back to the grand jury and give, do it right this time. We've won those in the past. Um, and uh, they, can be, they can be big wins because sometimes prosecutors are embarrassed. They don't want to have it remanded. They'll offer you a good plea at that point. Uh, sometimes they have trouble getting another indictment later on. I've had that situation as well. But uh, for the most part, prosecutors are able to get their uh, what they want out of grand juries in an indictment issues. So once the indictment issues, uh, that's a secret proceeding, as I've said. The judge will then unseal that uh, indictment and then schedule a hearing called an arraignment. And the arraignment is 
the hearing where the defendant is summoned to come to court. And basically they have a right to have in a public way, if they choose, the judge to read on the record publicly exactly what the allegations are, what are the charges in that indictment, and the defendant will then enter a plea, which is always, almost always a not guilty plea at the arraignment. Uh, usually that's a time in Arizona in the state court where you're starting to get what we call discovery, which are police reports, witness statements, uh, recordings, uh, things like that. They will start disclosing those items. And uh, oftentimes the judge will schedule the next hearing, which we usually call an initial pretrial conference. And then that can be 30 to 45 days down the road. You hope you get your client out of custody by then. If you haven't, uh, you can request another hearing, which is called a release hearing, and have the judge now revisit the earlier decision on release to try to get maybe a lower bond or an OR release or some, something changed so the person can get out of custody. And then, of course, from there, you're on what you might call the trial track. And um, there are rules that deal with the right to a speedy trial. Um, they're mostly honored, but uh, as a practical matter, if the state needs more time, they usually get more time. And um, But cases can proceed pretty quickly. If you wanna go to trial pretty quick, um, you generally can get the case to trial pretty quick. To be fair, it's almost always the defense asking for a continuance so the defense has more time, right? Because usually at this point, the prosecutors had plenty of time to prepare the case. Many of the statutes of limitation, which is the time that the state has to bring a charge, those are oftentimes seven years, sometimes longer. We have several crimes that have no statute of limitation. So usually the prosecutor is well prepared um, by the time they're bringing the charge. And the defense attorney is seeing the case for the first time. So usually it's the defense attorney who wants a continuance of the case. Uh, and you always have a right to trial in the United States. Uh, nobody can force you into a plea. In fact, judges won't take a plea unless they ask you on the record, is anybody forcing you or threatening you or coercing you in some way to take this plea? And they also make sure that the defendant understands you have an absolute right to trial. Uh, you can go to trial if you want. And um, you know the way trials are conducted in the United States, again, uh, there are things I would improve, but for the most part, we do a reasonably good job. Uh, this involves things like the rules of evidence, which are um, rules that have been hotly debated and litigated that deal with what pieces of evidence uh, get to be heard by a jury. There's some determinations that the system has made. For example, uh, character evidence. Uh, the person might be charged with a crime and um, there might be things of other things they've done in their life that are bad. You don't get to bring evidence in uh, just to say, hey, the defendant's a bad guy. And as a bad guy, he probably is guilty of this too. That's prohibited. There are um, exceptions to the rule and there are different purposes for which that type of evidence can come in. But generally speaking, it does not come in just to say, hey, look, he's a bad guy. He's done bad things in the past. We want that evidence brought in. On a felony, you always have a right to a jury trial. Um, I don't think this is unique to the United States, but I think it's around the world fairly rare to have a right to a jury trial. There are some things about it that are good, some things about it not so good. Um, and then the way we pick the jury is a, um, 
highly litigated um, process. You have uh, peremptory strikes, which means that we usually will pick enough jurors to cover how many people we need on the jury, which is often eight, sometimes 12, depending on how many years are at risk. And then um, a couple of alternates usually, depending on how long the trial is. And then you get freebie strikes. We call these peremptories. So if each side gets six, then you might pick an extra 12 people to be on the jury. Now, these are strikes you don't really have to justify for any reason. You just uh, could say, look, I don't like the look on this guy's face. Something about this person I don't like. We just strike them. And the way it works is the defense will get a strike. The state will get a strike. The defense will get a strike. They go back and forth. And eventually you're left with the proper number of jurors and alternates that you selected to have at the beginning. And then the jury trial commences from there. And um, the state always gets to go first. They have the burden of proof. They present their case first. The way the trial starts normally is with some opening statements. And so the state gets to introduce the case. They get to stand in front of the jury and say, ladies and gentlemen, this is a case about this, that, or the next thing. And uh, we're gonna show you evidence about this or that. Keep an eye out for the this, that, or the next thing, blah, blah, blah. They'll sit down, then the defense attorney can get up and say, we see the case differently. Um, you're gonna hear from this person or that person. It's sort of a preview of what the evidence will be in the case. It's not supposed to be a time for argument. Then the prosecutor's case starts. And so they will call their first witness. They have an opportunity to do a direct examination on the witness. The defense always has a right to cross-examine the witness. So we get to ask them leading questions, questions that start with things like, isn't it true uh, that, or wouldn't you agree, or yes or no, uh, those types of questions. And uh, they get a full cross-examination. And then the state will get another opportunity for what we call redirect. And they get to re rehabilitate the witness after cross-exam. So they get to call all their witnesses and we use that process. After they've called their last witness, the state will say the state rests. Oftentimes there'll be a motion at that point. Uh, the defense attorney will bring a motion that will essentially say, look, uh, even if you uh, believe everything they presented, there's not enough uh, for a jury to convict this person. So we shouldn't have to present anything. Find right now, judge, that uh, enter an acquittal and let's be done. And I've won several of those. They can be hard to win, but I've won them at that point. That's uh, that's a big blow for the prosecutor when we get the case kicked at halftime, as we like to say. But if the judge doesn't grant that, uh, then the defense has an opportunity to present their case. The defendant has an absolute right to testify. The defendant has an absolute right not to testify. Can't be can't be forced to testify. So the state, in their case, can't call the defendant to testify. That's the defendant's decision. And so um, the defense will call its witnesses, same process in reverse. The defense attorney will do direct examination, the state will do cross, and then the defense attorney will do redirect and they'll tear through all of their witnesses. And then the defense will rest. And then at that point, it's time for argument, which is my favorite part of the case, uh, closing arguments. So what'll happen is the prosecutor will go first, They'll give all their arguments about why they believe they have proven each element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, then they'll sit down and the defense attorney will get up there and uh, give their reasons why the state did not prove 
uh, each element beyond a reasonable doubt and why the jury should return a not guilty. And then the prosecutor gets what we call a rebuttal closing, which is to say they get to the last word because they have the um, burden of proof. They also get to sit closest to the jury, sort of a tradition in the American criminal justice system. And then the jury deliberates and they deliberate um, by themselves. Nobody gets to say anything to them. I will say Arizona has some um, progressive rules. I think Arizona may have been the first state, if not the first one of the first states to allow jurors to ask questions of witnesses, which is very uncommon. The way this works is when both sides have finished with any particular witness, uh, the judge will turn to the jury and say, do the members of the jury have any questions? And they'll, pat, they'll write down their questions and they'll pass them down to the bailiff and the bailiff will collect them. And then uh, generally the judge will ask the attorneys to come up to the bench or to go to a different place. And then the judge will read the questions. And then the defense attorney and the prosecutor will have an opportunity to object, say, no, 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 we don't want that question asked for whatever reason. The judge will make a decision. If the judge allows the question, then the judge reads that question to the witness and then the witness answers the question. So um, this is, I, I think this was a good innovation. Uh, also, there's another one I skipped over it. Um, Arizona innovated with something called a mini opening statement, which is really, really early before the jury is even picked. Uh, when there's a big, uh, a huge room filled with jurors, um, each side gets very brief, you know, a, a couple of minutes to just give a quick overview. This is a case about this, because to that point, the jurors have absolutely no idea what kind of a case it is. And so uh, you get to give a little introduction on what the case is about at that point. So those are some little different things that have been done. You always, I should say, always have a right to appeal if the defendant is convicted. Um, I should say there's a double jeopardy pr pr protection there. So if the defendant is acquitted, the prosecutor can't doesn't get another bite at the apple. Uh, you can only be prosecuted once. Um, for this event, unless there's a mistrial or something like that. And you can't be punished more than once either for the same conduct. We call that double jeopardy. And then you have an absolute right to an appeal if you're convicted. Uh, you have an, We call this an appeal of right. So you can take your case uh, to the appellate court. A lot of people don't understand. They think this is sort of another trial. It's not. Um, what the appellate court is looking for here are legal errors. Was there a mistake made? Uh, there can be mistakes made with uh, things that judges let into evidence. Uh, instead of excluding from evidence, there can be mistakes made uh, for failing to excuse jurors, having biased jurors on the jury. Uh, there can be mistakes made if a prosecutor says something inappropriate or improper. Uh, jury instructions are a very fertile ground for appeals because we've got to give the jury the law on the case and you would think the law is well settled, that's true, but we almost always write some special instructions. Um, and so we'll ask the judge to give some certain special instructions that we may contour for the particular case. Uh, if the judge doesn't give them and should have given them, that can be a reason for an appeal. And uh, that's basically how the appellate process works. If you lose your appeal, you can petition the Supreme Court uh, but the Supreme Court doesn't have to hear the appeal. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And then uh, if it's a state case, like I've been describing, you can take your case over to the federal court. 
and ask a judge on the federal court to rule on federal issues that are applicable in that case, not state issues, but federal issues. And um, even if you don't get what you want there, you can appeal those federal issues to the Court of Appeals in the federal system, which where I live is the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And then of course, if you lose there, you can always ask the United States Supreme Court to look at it, but they take very, very few cases uh, every year. So uh, if you're asking for them to look at your case, you're, you're probably in trouble. But there's a, a little bit of an overview of how our system works. Oh, that was definitely like a, a crash course. Uh, definitely, definitely something that probably you, you take over a semester to learn at university or something like that. So thank you so much for walking us through all of that. That was really nice. Um, I guess anybody who's thinking about a career in, in criminal defense or just as a criminal attorney in general, uh, just listening to these, you can have a real clear idea of what that looks like, what uh, some of your main roles will be as a criminal defense attorney, or maybe even as a prosecutor, knowing now all the all the steps of this process. Um, I was just thinking here that that's so nice. And you mentioned that uh, Arizona is very innovative in, in different ways and different things that they do there. That's really incredible. Um, something that I really find uh, fascinating and interesting is, is this idea of being licensed in different locations within the same country. Here in Brazil, everybody, uh, once you're admitted into the, the bar, it's a national bar, so you can practice really anywhere. But um, I do understand also that the U.S. is a federation and with uh, different states having different laws that, um, I guess, make sense to, to a big extent. And I understand also there is some reciprocity in some different things. So it's very interesting that you um, both act in Arizona and Hawaii. Um, something that I'm, I'm also considering here, uh, I really would um, love to have you just give a, a quick uh, explanatory um, idea for our listeners. Uh, Mark is also the founder of, of a global peace movement called Live and Let Live. And I also love to keep uh, striving for consistency here in our podcast as far as how, how long our episodes go. So uh, we're, we're probably going to wrap up in a couple minutes, but I'd love to have Mark come over to speak about the, the global peace movement in a broader sense in another opportunity. But just so people have a little taste of it, Mark, would you mind just uh, mentioning to us real quick um, what's yeah. the general idea of it? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So yeah, Live and Let Live is a global peace movement that is getting ready to kick off in March of 2023. Uh, I think it's just got a wonderful message. It's really based on uh, two separate rules. Rule number one, uh, don't be an aggressor. And uh, this is the kind of rule that we feel that um, everybody has to abide by. We're not asking for anybody's permission here. Uh, we want the rule to be that aggression is wrong, and aggression is, of course, the initiation of force or fraud or coercion or doing things that put another person in danger. Uh, we want the law to be, you can't do that. And so that's, that's what we call our legal principle, don't be an aggressor. And we want all laws to be uh, consistent with this notion of not being an aggressor. Um, but if you don't violate that, um, you should be left alone. And we think this rule should apply to everybody. Uh, pe all people should be treated equally in all groups and uh, corporations and governments as well. We don't think anybody should get a break 
from the don't be an aggressor rule. We think it's a good rule and it should be followed by everyone in all groups and all governments and all times. Then that rule is mandatory. That is the most important rule. We can't have a civilized society while people are aggressing against each other, or at least while the law doesn't prohibit it. Then there's the second rule, which is a less important rule, but still very important. We call this a, this is a moral rule. We describe it with the phrase, just be a good human. You, you're free to ignore this. Uh, you can say, I don't care about being a good human. As long as you don't aggress against other people, you should be left alone. But we break this one down into what we call aspirational values, things we wanna inspire people to adopt. Things like open-mindedness and tolerance and voluntary kindness towards others and civility and justice and truth and facts wherever they lead and reasonable inferences and building high levels of trust with other human beings. And we care about this stuff because what we're trying to get done here with this moral principle is we want to optimize human happiness and well-being all over the world for everybody, no matter where they live. And we want to minimize suffering. We see the world uh, in the Live and Let Live movement as a global community. That our, What Corona showed us, if you didn't know already, is uh, we're really all connected. The planet now has become a lot smaller. And so we got to think about uh, threats from different parts of the world. We need to think about uh, we can't just put our heads in the sand and worry about our little community. So uh, if you like the sound of this, I urge everybody to check out our brand new website at liveandletlive.org. We've just put up our second uh, revision on our website. It looks really great. I'm excited about it. It lists lots of different chapters. And I, I'm told we're going to have a new chapter in Brazil here soon. And I'm looking forward to getting that one going. I'm super excited to have that uh, happening here in Brazil, too. And thank you so much, Mark, for sharing with us uh, some of your career, some of the idea of um, what's the justice framework in America, and also some of your um, um, developments in the global peace movement, Live and Let Live. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys uh, for listening to the podcast today. We appreciate you all and hope you can hear our next episodes. Thank you. Bye.